like a sense of peace, quietness, um, fun, concentrated, uh, cushioned for some reason. I don't know why that came in, but cushioned. Serious. I'd say beautiful. Validity. Grounding to be in my ideas and to have support. You just feel like part of something amazing. It's a space where I can be with my own mind. Feeling the importance of the written words. A meditative space. Um, There's a kind of sanctity about it. And creativity, feeling of creativity. Welcome to Anything But Silent from the British Library. I'm Cleo Laskarin, and contrary to our title, today we are actually going to be soaking up some of that library silence and enjoying the calm. In this episode, I want to meditate on the idea of sanctuary, and whether for you that's the quiet of reading a good book, escaping to an entirely different type of place, or finding refuge. Stories today will transport us to South Wales and also to Syria as we look at what the word sanctuary means to different people. To begin, though, we land somewhere a little closer to home, the reading rooms at the British Library, which we have at both our sites in St. Pancras, London, and Boston Spa in Yorkshire. My name's Dia. Um, I work as a PhD researcher at the Department of English in King's College, London. I've been coming to the British Library for the past four years now for my research, which has just concluded, and now I'm hoping to, to publish a book from my PhD thesis. I'm Tony, um, I'm an engineer, but as it happens, the reason I came to the British Library was to research depth psychology. I spent the whole of January here taking 10,000 words of notes uh, from various books. I knew I was going to need a lot of books. I think my favourite place would have to be the rare books room, and it's not actually because I've used a rare book in there, but it's, it's just because it's such a lovely, quiet space. Um, I have plenty of, of room at the desks to do my work. So I came to, you know, kind of use the vast stock of books here, knowing that every book that's published in the UK has to be deposited here. And um, I went to Humanities One, which is one of the reading rooms, and it's uh, paradisical, it's just incredible. I'm someone who's quite easily distracted by the outside world, or sometimes even by my own mind. And to come into the library, to have that silence around me, but also to have like a community of scholars amongst whom I'm sitting and working, it's like a feeling of um, belonging, as well as the silence I need in order to think and get on with my work, so. It's like I find every time I walk into a pub, I have to have a pint of bitter. Coming here has the same effect on academic work. You walk in and you just click bang into work mode. Uh, and you open your books and you, you go. Right, well, my, my name's Val and um, I use the British Library to research ethnomusicology. I studied for a master's when I was 60 years old and it meant a lot to me at the time because I didn't leave school with A-levels, I didn't go to university, so... I always feel that in the British Library, it's given me an opportunity. And I don't think, I, I've never found that same sanctuary 
because I didn't sort of start off in, in, with an academic career at all, and particularly in the time when I was a nurse, because I'm now 72 years old, if you were a, did a job like nursing, you, you weren't really considered anything to do with a, any sort of academic world. Or, In fact, I used to get teased for sort of having too much interest in, in culture and arts. <laughs> You know, you, you knew your place in those days and you weren't really supposed to rise above it. And I think that once I'd broken through that barrier of giving myself permission to do all this, I felt, I, I think the day I got my reader's card to enter the libraries, <laughs> it sounds a bit daft, but <laughs> I remember feeling very proud of my readers. I can go and read in the British Library. <laughs> I'm not going to let anybody tell me I can't do this. <laughs> Everything about the place enters your body. It's more than just sitting at your desk. You take in the air, you take in the atmosphere. I think there's something about the acoustics. There's something about the, the kind of, I don't even know how to describe the, the acoustics, but the acoustics are not harsh, they're soft. It's that book smell. It's a little bit dusty sounds like a bad word. People say things have a dusty smell and it seems negative. It's not negative to me. It's a kind of dryness. It's a kind of oldness. It's a kind of sacredness, even. My name is Tessa McQuatt and I'm a writer and I'm also a professor of creative writing at the University of East Anglia. And I've just finished a book of nonfiction. My favorite place here in the library probably is on this floor in the Humanities 2. That's where I worked because I was a Eccles British Library Award winner. I worked on a book using the Eccles collection. And it's just lovely to be up high here and to be lost in the work. My name is Erica Wagner. I am a writer and critic. I won the Eccles Centre Writers Award in 2014. Sanctuary means a safe space, doesn't it? A place removed from the pressures of the world. And I think that very much applies to what I find at the British Library. There are pressures, of course, to do with wanting to get things right, whatever right means for every individual writer. So sanctuary doesn't necessarily mean a complete freedom from obligation. But to me, it means a clear space to absolutely pursue single-mindedly what I want to do. Sanctuary is also some place that refugees and migrants and people who are running away need as well. So the British Library being a place that's open to everybody working on some kind of project is a wonderful sanctuary for, and it's a kind of democratic and a kind of egalitarian space because it allows people just interested in books to be here in their imaginations, in their ideas, in their problems, in their searches. And so it has a kind of sense of refuge as well as privilege for me. voices of PhD researcher Dia Gupta, ethnomusicologist Val Harding, engineer and depth psychology researcher Tony Bebuck, and writers Erica Wagner and Tessa McWatt, all summing up that feeling of sanctuary at the British Library. 
Erica and Tessa are both previous recipients of an award that enables fiction and nonfiction writers to use the British Library's Americas collection to inspire and inform their work. The Eccles Center and Hay Festival Writers Award includes a grant and a residency at the British Library, and applications are currently open for 2020. If you're interested, search Eccles Hay Writers Award online to find the details. Submissions are welcome for works in English, Spanish, and languages indigenous to the Americas. But act fast, as applications need to be in before September 16th. Listening to what our readers were saying, it's not a surprise to hear that so many people relate with the feeling of books and learning as their safe space. At the British Library, there are so many lovely places to tuck away and find your own spot. I love going into the reading rooms and listening to the very quiet sound of hundreds of people working. But as we all know, the library is not just a place for academics. For some people in the world, this feeling of sanctuary, it's a necessity, one that holds life in the balance. Hi, Abdul Hello. Bassett. Hi, Nidal and Michael. Hi, hi Abdul Bassett. Hi, Sir Mike. Hi there. I'm Jad. This is Mike. Hello, Mike. Omar, Omar, thank you indeed for coming to speak to us. I'm Mike Thompson. I'm an international correspondent for the BBC. And in 2015, I was looking at the situation in Syria and the fact that so many people there at the time were under siege. One of the places under siege was Dorea. And I did an interview with somebody there about how people were surviving. I said to him, how do you manage psychologically to cope with all this? And he said to me, we need to have our minds on other things. We need to be thinking of something beyond the hell that surrounds us. And he said, we have a library. It's a secret library, he said, slightly whispering. It's a collection of books that help take us into a different world altogether. It was from that moment on that my interest peaked and I thought, look, I'm going to have to find out more about this. And it was the start of a long story. Mike Thompson is a seasoned reporter, often found working on stories in some of the world's most troubled and dangerous places. Places where shelter, sustenance and medical aid tend to be the most reported topics not books. But Dorea captured Mike's attention. Besieged by Syrian government forces since 2011, the suburb, five miles southwest of Damascus, had been rendered a no-go zone by bombs, missiles, and snipers. Despite his efforts, Mike just couldn't find a way in. Neither his employers nor locals were willing to smuggle him in for safety fears. But through word of mouth, he eventually began to make connections with people on the ground, talking to them through secure messaging apps, Mike tells the story of Dorea through those interviews he collected. When I first talked to people in Dorea, it was quite deep into the war, and uh, it was in a very, very sorry state. They'd already been barrel-bombing it, and much of the place was a complete wreck. When they decided to build the library and create the library, they were spoiled for choice, really, because they were looking for somewhere that had been largely destroyed, an area of the town that had been largely destroyed, that therefore wouldn't look like it was much of a prize to bomb from the air. And that's why they chose one of many areas of the town that had been uh, bombed to a very sorry state and uh, picked a building 
that was beneath the crumbling tower block. So the basement was intact, but the rest of the building just looked a wreck and it looked like there was no life there at all. So here we have this sort of literary sanctuary in the middle of hell. Above, you've got shells going off, you've got snipers firing, you've got people who are searching for food, desperate to eat something. Meanwhile, just beneath the street, there's this oasis of calm. There's this library. Here's a place where they were not just reading themselves, they were holding book clubs, discussing various books. They were even having lectures. They had lectures on things like, for instance, the, the London Blitz, and they discussed how a city like London that was bombed to near oblivion in parts uh, managed to survive and prosper, and they were saying, this is what could happen to us. This is what our situation could be. We can recover. All of this held as if they were in Croydon or somewhere. It, it was done in, in such a relaxed sort of way, and yet just a few feet above their heads was absolute desolation. It was the most extraordinary situation to be in. One of the things that amazed me about the library was the fact that I knew that food was in really short supply. I'd been told people had little more than a cup of watery soup to eat each day. And yet there they were, going out, not looking for food, looking for books. And I said to um, one of the people there, Anas, I said to him, Anas, um, wouldn't you be better off going out looking for food instead of books, much as I know you enjoy books and they do so much for you, but you're in such need of food. And he said, look, the soul needs books just like the body needs food. He said, if we were just to sit around and try and survive, which isn't really within our grasp, really, it's the luck of the draw, because nowhere's safe here, what would we be surviving for? We need something more than that. And books give us a reason to carry on. They give us a hope in the future. And without these, many of us would either leave or perhaps not care too much whether we survived or not. That's how important these books and this library is to us. Most of the people involved in creating the library were men. They had quite a few women users too, but most of those initially who decided to go and do this were men, and most were former university students, people like uh, Abdul Bassett. Good evening, how are you? An immensely poetic sort of guy, and uh, it was his passion to go out with the others collecting books from abandoned homes, many of them without walls, sometimes without roofs, and all the books were getting terribly damaged. He was one of the, um, the chief architects of the trips to rescue them. On the creation of the library, he said, I felt so happy looking at what we'd all achieved. I knew that this was a very special moment. So in order for us to be educated and for us to be more aware, we had to have a library. Everything seemed to be phrased in a sort of poetic way. I mean, I remember once he said to me, Mike, do you know that books, they're a bit like rain. Where rain falls, things grow. And where books are found, knowledge grows.
One of the most amazing things was speaking to a boy called Amjad. Amjad, this is Mike. Hello, Mike. 14-year-old Amjad, or 14 at the time I began speaking to him. I'd got through to what I thought was Anas's phone, but he must have put his phone down because Amjad got hold of the call. And uh, I said, is that Anas? He said, no, it's Amjad. He had quite a young voice, even for a 14-year-old. He sounded younger than 14. And I said, oh, so what do you do there? And he said, I'm chief librarian. What was it about being the deputy librarian that you most loved? What? Deputy? I'm the owner of the library. I am sorry, sir. Um, <laughs> what was it about being the owner of So the I said, library? well, tell me about your library, chief librarian. And he said, well, I run the library here. I have a little desk. Uh, I have two desks, in fact. I have one in the main office so I can see who's coming in. But I also have my own office. I just have a plaque saying management. And inside, there's a desk. He said, it's small, just like me. I did say to uh, Abdul Basit, is it really worth risking your life and that of others to get books, however much they mean to you, somebody could die. And he said, well, look, if there was a feeling that one particular mission was just too dangerous, and he said, we wouldn't go. He said, what we sometimes did was we'd get help from Free Syrian Army soldiers who would come with us, not so much to shoot at anyone shooting at them, but to help guide them in how to get to the building, get to their objective without being seen. One of the questions that really intrigued me was, what did the fighters, the people who were defending Derea from Assad's regime, what did they think of other young men just sitting around reading books? It was then that I got to speak to Omar. Do you want to start addressing yes, Omar? Now, Omar was a fighter, a former university student. He wasn't a professional soldier, but he was helping defend the town. And I asked him, what did you think about it when you first went? And he said, I think it's marvellous. He said, I come to the library, as do many other fighters, very regularly. He said, it's just such a wonderful place to go. And he said, in fact, we even hold book clubs on the front line in our foxholes from little bags of books we bring with us from the library. And he said, We want a free nation. That's all we want. And hopefully by reading, we can achieve that. Books motivate us to keep on going. We read how in the past, everyone turned their backs on a particular nation, yet they still made it in the end. So we can be like that too. They help us plan for life once Assad is gone. So we're in the process of planning what comes next. We can only do that through the books we're reading. We want so much more than Assad. We want to be a free nation, and hopefully, by reading, we can achieve this. Sadly, the day after the radio documentary I made about the story in the initial phases of the siege, Omar was killed.
as the forces got closer, that's Assad's forces, they started taking over all the farmland that surrounded Dereya so that people then couldn't grow any more food. But they were being pushed, that's the civilians, into increasingly small areas of the town. And they knew, all of them, that ultimately the end was coming. The way Amjad talked to the library to me was very much, he was so emotional about it, so fiercely attached to it. He said, I'll never forget my last hours at the library. It was such a sad day, knowing that I would be leaving it behind. The night before, I just couldn't sleep. I'd always believed that I would never do that, that I would always work there and look after it. But I have no option. I console myself with the fact that I have some books to take with me. The library was as central and as important to them as it ever was. In fact, this quote I'm about to read you from Abdul Basit explains that very, very clearly. On the last day, he said to me, when I tell you what I did next, please don't think that I'm crazy or shell-shocked or something, but this is what happened. Knowing this might be the last time I would ever see the library, I walked over to the shelves and hugged the books. I hugged as many as I could. While I did this, I cried. I cried a lot. Then I walked around reading the titles on the spines out loud and, and flicking I through the pages of some of them. I wished I that I could take them with me in fear of what's going to happen to them later, that they will be burned or destroyed. I'm sure this will happen. It would be so terrible. I believe in the books. I believe in our secret library. The library gave birth to a knowledge movement, and it also became a sanctuary. Mike Thompson and the people of Dorea. You can read more and find out about the fate of the library books in Mike Thompson's recently published book titled Syria's Secret Library, Reading and Redemption in a Town Under Siege, which also goes into detail on the complicated political situation of the region. We heard from Mike that since being evacuated, it has been reported that members of the group have started a mobile library for children at their camp in Idlib, a clear sign of the resilience and determination of the Syrian people. Their commitment to maintaining some form of library seems indicative of the solace that books can offer them. It feels like such an important story to share. You're listening to Anything But Silent from the British Library, and so far we've heard thoughts on libraries offering different types of sanctuary and places of hope and inspiration. For the final part of this episode, I want to look at the idea of companionship. Ernest Hemingway apparently once said, There's no friend as loyal as a book. But what about a friend who reads a book to you? We're describing our experience of when we read together. Yes. And it's being recorded so it can be used as a podcast. Mm. Have you heard of podcasts? No, I no. After my, my time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can be famous. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to be on the air. We'll have to get it and you can listen to it then. Oh, yes, right. <laughs> Eileen is in the hospital. She's been there for some time, months in fact, spring into summer. 
waiting for a care package to be set up so that she can go back home and live there safely with the support of health workers. She's in Singleton Hospital, looking out over Swansea Bay. I've been very lucky. I think it must be one of the best views here. It's a great vantage point, sky and sea and seagulls. But it is a hospital ward. When you're in here and you haven't got a visitor or anything, and everybody else has, you haven't even got anyone to talk to or even to listen to. It uh, can, you know, can be like that. The lady on, on the end there. Although she's got relations locally, she doesn't get many people coming to see her and she can't get out of bed. The wards can appear quite busy, but in fact people get isolated because the staff are just rushing around and you don't have visitors very often perhaps or you can't get up and potter around like you can at home, so it's quite dull. That's Prue Thimbleby. She's the arts coordinator for Swansea Bay Health Board. Her work involves finding ways for culture and creativity to be part of a healing process, improving the lives of patients. One project she's helped to set up has been the hospital's Reading Friends Initiative, a program created by the Reading Agency. It's about volunteers sitting down with those people and engaging in conversation through the medium of books. A pretty simple idea and a great one. Eileen has struck up a friendship with volunteer Sean, who turns up on the ward with books to read together and discuss. We hit it off straight away, didn't we? Yeah. How long have you been coming to me? Um, four months, five months. Oh, that, I'm sure. <laughs> Although I didn't know you, I was very uh, pleased when you came. Who wouldn't want you to come and talk and <laughs> read to me? <laughs> Being out in the garden, meant playing for hours on the swing or helping mum hang up a week's washing on a washing line that stretched the length of the garden. Sometimes we played cowboys with cap guns, made a tent with wooden clothes made and a sheet. Did you used to make tents? Yeah, well yes, we didn't have proper tents. We used to make them. (laughs) Reading aloud, reading with others, what a beautiful human experience getting to share worlds, taking refuge together, exploring. I love it. Getting read to is is fantastic. Oh, I actually prefer reading to people. I think it's that I love the sound of my own voice. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but you have a quite nice accent, so it's... Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, getting read to is nice. Yeah, there's something quite, quite comforting about it, and it's like when you were read to as a child, yeah, comforting and safe and a, a place of sanctuary, yeah. perhaps. Yeah, when my grandma died, I was in my teens, and... For some reason, I just wanted my dad to read me the Harry Potter books again. That just felt like the perfect sort of antidote to my sadness. She was very old. It was Mm. the time for Mm. her to go, but that felt perfect Mm. somehow. The books are chosen by participants, volunteers, what's available. Bob Gelsthorpe is the manager of the Reading Friends Project in Wales. And it can be anything through from the crossword through to magazines to picture books to high works of literature, it's kind of a level playing field with what can be spoken about or or read with. We've particularly found a set of books called Pictures to Share enormously useful and everybody has really enjoyed them. 
We help Dad plant seeds in long, straight rows. Yes. Pick potatoes, peas, broad beans, pears, raspberries, rhubarb, plums and apples. Yes, and my son and his children are doing the same thing. They're doing it with Dad. Oh, lovely. <laughs> Planting a garden of yeah. their own. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Did you used to grow a lot of things in, in your oh, garden? We had a big garden and an allotment. I remember... <laughs> My father used to go down there of an afternoon because he finished early and um, he liked to have a cup of tea, hot tea, when he was gardening. And so, of course, I was the one, I was the youngest, and I was sent down to the allotment. And he didn't mind whether it was hot or cold. And then I used to have to stand there while he's <laughs> down. <laughs> and. Um, then I'd take it back. Oh, so that was your role as the youngest yes. in the family? Yes. Mm. <laughs> take that a cup of tea. Yes. <laughs> Very nice. I can see myself there mm. still, mm. which is a long time ago. Were you one of a big family? I was. As a person, I'm not particularly outgoing, so I find having these books is a very helpful tool for me to be able to launch into conversation and build up a relationship. We talk about it, don't mm. we? Mm. Which is good. Yeah. You know, because you're not just coming to read me. Yeah. Like, I can read myself, you That's know. That's right, <laughs> yes. It's about sharing, isn't it? Yes. Really? That's right. And it'll come back to me, and uh, it's really nice. Obviously, and uh, hadn't you hadn't been here, I wouldn't even have thought about it. To remember. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and we're working our way through the titles, aren't we? Yes, that's right. So we've got through a few books. Oh, yes. And a few giggles. And <laughs> <laughs> which yes. come in very good when you're in a place like this, you know, because mostly people are experiencing things that they're not enjoying. I really enjoy looking at these books as well. I don't ever tire of them because each time you, you look at them with a different patient, a different story comes out of it. And so I think you can learn a lot about other people, other people's lives and what they've experienced. You can learn from that. We're all learning all the time, aren't we? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Who would be your perfect reading buddy? Oh. I would say any of my friends with strong regional accents, just because I find that quite enjoyable. My friend Kevin in Liverpool, or my friend Svetlana in Aberdeen, any of my friends in Cardiff with a particularly strong accent. If you were in the hospital, who do you think your perfect reading buddy would be? Mm, I don't know. <laughs> I think that having the students come in is great fun actually and some of the foreign students really wanted to do it because it's around language and there we were enjoying English and so having a young person who's interested in sitting chatting and you can hear about them too. Uh, we started actually we've got a university next door here Swansea University and we started by with student volunteers. So all last winter we had 15 students coming in on a rotor on two different wards reading with patients and we're going to begin the same again with the new intake this autumn. Reading Friends is the brainchild of Debbie Hicks, a founding member of the Reading Agency. 
The scheme has taken on a variety of shapes and forms across the UK. Projects that we're currently running are in all sorts of different places. They're in public libraries, in prisons, there's intergenerational work with schools, they're in care homes, they're in community settings with dementia alliance groups. So the, the model is really flexible. It can operate in all sorts of different places. Just sitting down and using a book to start conversation. A book club of two, I think, is a wonderful idea. I think that's enough people for a book club, honestly. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Why do you think it's important for people to get involved, and what do you think it says about our society? Connections are important. Connections between the generations. Isolation and loneliness can happen to anyone at any time. Sharing stories, you know, around the fireside or listening to the radio together in, in the past has been a way of connecting people up. So it's about bringing people together in a new world using traditional methods. When I'm reading certain types of poetry, I find that's a sense of sanctuary. That's a sense of me looking into somebody else's sanctuary and being given the key to the door to come in. Libraries are involved at every stage and in every level of Reading Friends and have been absolutely crucial to its success. Public libraries will either be running projects, providing content like books or letters or you know, anything that sort of would spark a conversation and is linked to reading. And they're also providing really useful glue to bring partnerships together. They have this really important role, which is much more than just lending books. It's about that community space, that non-stigmatised democratic access. I've been doing so much la laughing today. <laughs> it's worth being in here. Yeah, yeah. Best medicine, they say. Oh, they? yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs>